but when I hear different expressions and different words and things used, I, I often find it interesting and sometimes humorous to find out where the origins of expressions are. And uh, just to give you an example of that, when we were in the USA in 2011, we, we did a little bit of, uh, of a tour in Washington, D.C. And uh, the national capital of the United States is a, a place that's filled with a lot of history. You go through the city center there, there, is, uh, there are monuments and museums and memorials and it seems like on every block there's history just staring you in the face. And um, we were traveling on, the, on a bus and the guy who was driving the bus had a microphone and was telling us different bits and pieces as we traveled. I don't know if I've shared this from the pulpit before, if I have or not. You can, you can just pretend it's the first time if I've shared it before. But uh, as we were going past a particular hotel... He told us a story of how there was a president, I can't remember which one it was, but this particular president liked to have a cigar at the end of his work day. And, uh, but his wife didn't like cigars being smoked in the White House. And so this president used to go down to a particular hotel and have his cigar in the lobby of this hotel. And he did that every afternoon where it was feasible. And after a while, this habit became known amongst other politicians and so if they wanted to to corner him to get 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 his ear to be able to try and get him to listen to their ideas they would make a practice of going to this hotel lobby at the end of the day to try and get the president's attention and that is apparently where we get the word lobbyist from somebody who is a lobbyist somebody who tries to push a particular agenda and these men would would uh, find the president of an afternoon in the hotel lobby, and that's where that word comes from. And uh, I, maybe, maybe I just need to get out more. I don't have enough friends. But I find looking at the meanings of words and phrases quite interesting. And you find that young people often use phrases and words in a way that is unique to their generation, and <laughs> in a way that may not always line up with the original meaning of a word, or the meaning that the generation before them understood it. And it's often something that becomes a part of a generation's identity, particular phrases and statements that they use. And sometimes when I get together with friends that I grew up with, we, we might use an expression from our youth just because now we look back and we think it was funny at the time. We, think, we used to think we were cool, but now we think we were pretty silly. For example, when I was uh, a young person, there was a word that young people used. They used the word wicked. If something was really good, they would say, that's wicked. Now, we all understand that wicked has nothing to do with anything good. You look up the dictionary and you look up wicked, you will not find good, awesome, or great. But somehow, it, it found its way into the vocab of a generation to be a positive thing. You know, and you'd say, oh, that's wicked. And be like, it's not really what wicked means. And there are a lot of other examples that we can use. But because I have adolescent children, I'm not going to go into too many of those. But uh, along the same line of thinking, our society is very image conscious. Very image conscious. And a lot of people, because of that consciousness, go to the gym, or work out and, and try to look after themselves. And uh, I know that in the, the suburb that I live in, there are probably about four or five gyms now within walking distance of my home. I say probably because I haven't walked to any of them, but, but uh, th there's nothing wrong with being healthy. 
And exercise is a good thing, but the motivation for some people is about other people looking at them. That's why after they go to the gym, they'll get around in tank tops and T-shirts that are two sizes too small and various forms of tight athletic wear because they want people to see what good shape they're in. And uh, some years ago, there was an expression that apparently started out among people that like to lift weights. And there is a purpose to all of this. And uh, when another person would make claims to be knowledgeable about working out or, or telling somebody else what to do and say, you need to do it like this or do it like that, sometimes they would be challenged with this question. And some of you young men will, re will recognize this statement. But they would say to them, bro, do you even lift? Any young men familiar with that expression? Bro, do you even lift? And, and so this morning I'm going to take that expression and for a few minutes I'm going to challenge us as men. So you ladies, you can just take notes to tell your men afterwards what we were talking about. But uh, with the question of bro, do you even lift? That's where we're going this morning. So Psalm 141 and verse 2. David said, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Amen. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for these faithful men. We just pray that in these next few minutes as we consider these things from your word that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would challenge us, Lord God, to be the men that you would have us to be, Lord. And even though we're ministering mainly toward the men today, Lord, these principles apply to all of us, Lord, both men and women, Lord. And so I pray that you would open our hearts today to receive your word. Anoint me, I pray, to deliver it as you would have it delivered in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the significance of the lifting of our hands? When many people come into a Pentecostal-type service for the first time and they look across the building and there are all these people doing this and they've never seen it before. It's quite strange. It's quite unusual. It's, it may not be something they were ex uh, exposed to in other churches they may have attended. But when we lift our hands in the context of, of church, it's a demonstration of several things. Firstly, it's, we've really got to get that drain fixed. It's... I hate that noise. It's a demonstration of surrender. It's a sign of surrender. We use the easy example of if somebody pointed a gun at you, the smart thing to do is to raise your hands and surrender and say, please, don't shoot me. The second thing that lifting our hands is a demonstration of is of reaching out to God, as in saying, God, I need you. Somebody's desperate for something, they will reach out. They will, they will reach for it. And thirdly, and perhaps the one we use more often than not, is that it is an act of worship. It is an act of lifting our hands to acknowledge the God it is that we serve. You'll see the same practice happen in the world at performances of various kinds where people will lift their hands and they don't really realize it, but it is an act of worship as well. And uh, both the Old and the New Testaments show us that the action or demonstration is only as valuable as its connection to the heart of man. In other words, it is when our hearts are surrendered. It is when our hearts are declaring our need for God 
And when we, from our hearts, want to worship God, when that's where it begins, that's when our action gets the attention of God. If it's simply a physical act of raising our hands with no involvement of our hearts, it's, it's without value. It's meaningless. And uh, we, the Lord said in Matthew 6 and 7, He said, When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. The Lord wasn't saying only pray for 30 seconds. He wasn't saying make your prayers short and sweet. What he was saying was the heathen, or in other words, when they are worshipping idols, there's a lot of repetition of the same words. And we know in some faiths and some beliefs, they even use a prayer wheel where they have a, a wheel with prayers written on it. And they spin that thing, believing that, that every time they spin, that those prayers are going up. And so you just, and, you know, I'd hook it up to an engine and just let it go. But, but the Lord was saying, he said, see, the word vain or vanity means emptiness. Or in other words, even though there was a lot of words, there was no heart. There was no meaning that was involved. And if we're all honest, when we pray, or at least I think most of us, there are times we say things out of habit when we pray. We're not even really thinking about what we're saying. Just, we just fall into the habit, you know. I know when on the odd occasion, if I'm updating the podcast and I listen to myself preach to, to trim the message or edit the message before I up, upload it, I find myself, why do you always say the same thing again and again? What is wrong with you? Are they the only three words you know? I'm probably going to do it this morning and I'll go home and listen and think I'm still doing it. Because we, we say things sometimes without thinking about it. And we do that when we pray. And uh, the Lord doesn't want us to have empty repetition when we pray. But He wants our prayers, or rather the demonstration, to come from the heart. Amen. And so when we, we read in, in uh, Psalm 141 about the lifting of our hands, David said that it, he wanted it to be like the evening sacrifice. And Paul said that the lifting of our hands needed to be holy. So we need to understand that the action is necessary. You know, you get people say, well, I'm not a worshiper because God knows my heart. Well, your heart is important, but if it's in your heart, it must come out. It must, the, the demonstration, the action, the expression is necessary. But it must always be something that is paired with our hearts. It's, it's one together with the other. Now, some of you have cars. When I use the word paired, some of you have cars that have Bluetooth capabilities in them. If you don't know what that is, ask one of the younger people. But what happens is you can take your mobile phone or some kind of electronic device and you can wirelessly pair that to your car's sound system. I do it all the time. When I drive around in my car, I have music that's on my phone. That's because it's paired to my stereo, it plays automatically through the car. That's kind of how it is with our heart and our action. What's going on in here is paired with what's happening on the outside. The two have a connection. One is the source. The other one is the demonstration. My phone is where my music is coming from, but it is being experienced without in the car through the speakers. And it doesn't matter how good the speakers are or how loud they are, if there's no source, there's no music. There's no new song, Brother Frost. And the Lord said in Luke 6 and 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. 
And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the scripture of how the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful and that they're wicked. We can also consider that the Lord said he'd give us a new heart. You know, when you're born again, it doesn't mean that your heart is perfect. You've still got a human nature. But when we're in the flesh, it's what is abundant or surplus or excess in our hearts that just comes out automatically. Even spirit-filled Christians sometimes say the wrong thing. But that's because we still have flesh. But if you're saying the wrong thing all the time, there's a surplus, there's an abundance that needs to be considered. But I think that even though the Lord said, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, we could also say quite accurately scripturally that out of the abundance of the heart the hands doeth. Because the two are connected. Our hands are symbolic of what we do and what we are responsible for. And when somebody's actions or decisions have caused the loss of another person's life, there is an expression that is used that said, you have blood on your hands. Now, you may not literally have blood on your hands, but the expression is saying that your actions are responsible for that outcome. You may not even have any physical contact with that person at all, but it is a statement that says you are responsible for what has happened. You have blood on your hands. To, to, to further elaborate on that point, the Lord said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, the message that the Lord is giving us is not simply about the touching of the handle of a plow. There's more to it than that, but rather it has to do with a change of heart that produces a change of action. The person, for whatever reason, started out to do something. They put their hand on the plow, but something within changed and caused them to turn back. It's a, it's a hand-heart connection. It's not one or the other. Amen. David said, and we read, that he desired that the lifting of his hands would be as the evening sacrifice. I got to thinking about what may be significant about the evening sacrifice sacrifice. If you know the Old Testament, you know that every day there was to be a morning and an evening sacrifice. That was to happen continually and never to cease. And it was, a, it was a symbolic of many things, but of ongoing worship, commitment, consecration to the Lord. And I realized that in, in 1 Kings in chapter 18, we read the story of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel when he had the confrontation with the, the prophets of Baal with the idol-worshipping prophets, and he, he threw down the gauntlet to them. He, he said, this is the challenge. He said, if you think you're God's God and I think my God's God, let's, he said, let's find out who really is. And he said, this is, these are the rules. He said, we're both going to build an altar. We're both going to prepare a sacrifice, but nobody is going to bring any matches or any flame. And we're going to pray and worship our gods, and whichever God can answer by fire, he's the God. And the people who were watching thought, that sounds like a pretty fair challenge. And so the Bible tells us that these hundreds, hundreds of false prophets who worshipped a dead idol began their routine and they sang and they danced and they, they had all their fancy robes on and they did all the things they did and they gave it everything they had to the point that they even self-harmed trying to get their God's attention. 
not a coincidence that there's a lot of self-harm in our world today. But nothing happened. No fire. They ran out of songs. They ran out of ideas. They ran out of techniques and methods. And their sacrifice was without spark. And the Bible says that they did this until the time of the evening sacrifice. And when it came to that particular time, that's there for a reason. The prophet stepped up. And he said, I'm going to make this even tougher. And he got, he got them to get barrels of water and they saturated that thing. They dug a trench around his altar. They put so much water on that thing that you couldn't have started a fire naturally even if you brought a flamethrower. And he stood there and he prayed and he called upon the Lord and he said, Lord, basically paraphrasing, he said, these people need to know that you are God. The Bible says that fire came down from heaven in such a fashion that it consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the wood, it consumed all of the water and all of the stones, and the people begin to declare that the Lord, He is the God. He is the God. Amen. It was an action. It was an action at the time of the evening sacrifice that brought clarity to the people of Israel, that shook them from their idolatrous confusion and demonstrated to them that there is still only one true and living God. And so, brethren, when we lift our hands, if it's as it was the time of the evening sacrifice, may the lifting of our hands bring clarity to the people of God. May what we do and what we demonstrate continue to tell people that He lives and that He still has all the power and that He is still the only one true and living God. When I lifted my hands, I want it to be, as David said, as the evening sacrifice. Let it make a statement that God is still real, that His Word is still true, and that what He said is still the only truth that we have. Amen. When we, when we lead our families, when we lead our church, may the lifting of our hands be as the evening sacrifice. You know, God expects, when you study the Word of God, God expects men to lead in the house of the Lord. It does not mean that they are of greater value than women. Anybody who teaches that doesn't understand the Scripture. But it means that we have a responsibility. That means when we begin to worship the Lord men, our hands need to be going up. Our worship needs to be extended. We need to be leading in worship. We need to be leading in prayer. We need to be leading in all of those things that God requires of us. Amen. It's also the time of the evening sacrifice is also the time that Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross of Calvary. The death of his flesh brought about the release of his spirit. His death and resurrection made it possible for us to have the Holy Ghost today, to be able to be filled with his spirit. And in much the same way, the death of our flesh the crucifixion of our own flesh, not in the physical killing of this body, but in that sinful man being put to death can also release the Spirit of God in us. May the lifting of our hands be as the evening sacrifice. Hallelujah. And then Paul wrote to us in the New Testament, and he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Again, he said, holy hands. What makes your hands holy? 
what makes my digits and my palm and my knuckles holy or unholy. Obviously, again, it is a statement of connection to our heart condition. It's not just talking about these physical things we have on the ends of our arms, but it is a relationship between heart and action. The psalmist said in the 24th Psalm, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And the fourth verse says, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Again, the two are connected. The Lord, the psalmist was not interested in hygiene. He wasn't worried about the fact that you hadn't washed your hands before you came to the dinner table. Trust me, in the Old Testament, everybody wasn't running around with a bottle of hand wash in their pockets like they do nowadays. But he was talking about the actions, the demonstrations and the connection with our hearts. We have to have clean hands and a pure heart if we want to ascend into the place where God is at. The two cannot be separated. James gives us a similar instruction in James 4 and 8. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. A letter written to the church. He's saying we are flesh, we are flawed, we are human, we still have a corrupt nature and we need to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. That is ongoing. That never stops. You know, there are, there are people that have had disorders that obsessively wash their hands. I can't remember what it's called. I should have looked it up. But even there were some famous people through history that they just constantly wanted to wash their hands because they can't seem to feel clean. That's because they're trying to clean themselves. When we come to Him and say, God, wash my heart, wash my hands, He is the one that cleanses us. Amen. So the Lord Timothy was written to by Paul and said that these hands that were supposed to be lifted up were to be holy and they were to be without wrath and doubting. Now these two, if you look in the, the, the Greek, these two are mentioned specifically for men. Gender specific, not mankind as a whole. That obviously does not mean that ladies are welcome to get as angry as they want and have as much doubt as they want. But they are listed particularly because there is a tendency for these traits to be evident more in males than females. And we've often looked at them and considered what they can represent but I got to thinking while I was praying, why are they mentioned together? We've looked at it often in the past when we've taught from 1 Timothy 2 and considered what they mean and what they represent, but why does Paul say wrath and doubting? I'm not convinced they're separate, but rather they belong in the same conversation. Is there a connection? You see, wrath, wrath has to do with an aggressive demonstration of anger. We could look at wrath for a long time. But what is interesting is the word that is translated from the Greek here as wrath is the word orge or O-R-G-E. And usually that's translated or often it's translated as anger, not as wrath. In fact, in most of the modern translations, the word anger is used in that verse. And the Greek word thumos or T-H-U-M-O-S is nearly always translated as wrath. And so we need to understand there is a little bit of a difference between those two words. And I, while I was studying 
This is what Vine's Bible Dictionary had to say about these two words. It says, Thumos or wrath is to be distinguished from orge or orge in this respect, that thumos indicates a more agitated condition of the feelings, an outburst of wrath from an inward indignation, while orge suggests a more settled or abiding condition of the mind, frequently with a view to taking revenge. Orge is more is less sudden in its rise than thumos, but more lasting in its nature. So the wrath or the anger that's spoken of here in Timothy has to do with things that we allow to reside within us and sit there and simmer. Not necessarily explosive. Wrath, we think, you think of a bomb going off or a volcano. When wrath is demonstrated, everybody knows there's wrath. But the anger, at least in the, the, the Greek meaning of the word here, has to do with things that might be just sitting there, not necessarily expressed, but residual. Residual. James 1 and 20 says that the wrath, or again, the word is, is orge, or we might say you could interchange with anger, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It worketh not the righteousness of God. Amen. When we talk about, so that's, that's the wrath part. Just put that on hold, don't forget about it. But doubting in this verse is not simply being skeptical. Men, men are usually more skeptical than ladies. That's why often, not always, but often, when the Spirit of God moves, ladies will often respond to what they feel. Whereas men will sit back and go, I don't understand, therefore I won't participate. That, that's unfortunately the way that we are. It's not right or wrong. It's just the fact that the Lord has wired us differently. Some of us are more wireless than others. But um, that wasn't in my notes. Um, probably shouldn't have been either. But, uh, so doubting in this passage has not only to do with being skeptical, but it includes the natural thinking of man, which is opposed to the word and the wisdom of God. And the two are not compatible. Natural thinking and the Word of God do not go together. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8 that the carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God. It's not subject to the law of God and it cannot be subject to the law of God. So there's, there's the, nat the process of natural thinking. In Romans 1, and you can get these verses off me afterwards if you'd like to, but in Romans chapter 1, when it describes the degeneration of mankind away from God, it says, because, in verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. That word imaginations is translated from the exact same word as doubting in First Timothy. It's the same word. And even the Lord, when, when in Luke 24, Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears to two disciples that are walking on the Emmaus Road and, and eventually reveals himself to them. And they get together with the other disciples and say, the Lord's risen from the dead. And the Bible says that he appears in the midst. And they're all scared. And the Lord said, why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? And that word thoughts comes from the same word as imaginations and doubting in 1 Timothy. 
The Lord was saying, why is it that you will just not trust me? Why are you trying to work it out? Don't be afraid. He said, it's me. And the reason I believe that the two are mentioned together, wrath or anger and doubting, is because one leads to another. One leads to another. When wrath or anger become the abiding condition of the mind, whatever the cause is, it will produce in us a dependence upon carnal thinking and not trusting in the Word of God. Because sometimes God is irrational. Sometimes there are things that God speaks to us or things His Word teaches us that do not fit with the way we think naturally. I'm not saying God is foolish. I'm not saying that God wants us to be foolish. But that's why it's called faith. Because sometimes it is contrary to the way my natural mind thinks. And I have to put aside that natural thinking and say, this is what God says, so I'm going to trust in it. And I'm, going, I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to allow my imagination to try to control. But I'm going to trust God and have faith. The question this morning is, brethren, do we even lift? And we're not talking about weights. We're talking about holy hands. We're talking about lifting up our hands as the evening sacrifice. See, if, you, if, you, if you're not in First Timothy 2, just go back there with me quickly as I bring this to a close. Back to First Timothy chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he goes on to say, for kings and those that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And we ought to pray for the leaders of our nations. Then in verse 3 it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Verse 4 says, that same Lord will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then it says, because there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The manifestation of God in flesh was to mediate between God and man, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, or in faith and truth. And then he says, I will therefore. So when you read this context, the I will of verse 8 is a reference to the I exhort of verse 1. Because he talks about beginning with prayers and supplications and intercessions. He talks about why and who for and because the Lord is our Redeemer. But then he says, and I will therefore. In other words, you need to start with prayer. Your foundation needs to be with prayer. And because of that, you also need to be able to lift up hope without wrath and doubting. You see, we understand today how important prayer is. And we preach about it. We teach about it. And God forbid that we ever stop doing that. Because without prayer, spiritually, you're not going to go anywhere. Actually, if you don't pray long enough, you'll definitely go somewhere. But it's not where you want to go. Prayer 
is the the source of our spiritual relationship with God. Prayer and the Word of God go hand in hand. Prayer, talking to the Lord, listening to the Lord, bringing our petitions to the Lord, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks, that is the platform. So why is it so important then in verse 8 that men, he goes back to that thought and he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. Why is it significant that our hands are holy and we don't have wrath and doubting? It's significant because if we have that anger residing in us and we are focusing on natural thinking and we bring those two things, we've got wrath or anger in one hand and the doubting and the natural thinking of man in the other and we bring those two into our place of prayer. What do you think the outcome is going to be? Whose voice do you think it is that we're going to hear? Because what happens when you come into a place of prayer but you bring carnality is that you are trying to do something spiritual through physical strength. And the voice you hear will not be the voice of God. But you will hear what your flesh wants you to hear and you will become deceived. That's why it is so important that Paul said, if you're going to pray, make sure your hands are holy. Make sure you've put wrath down and doubting down. And when you come into his presence, it needs to be in faith and in honesty and in transparency. Because when you try to do the spiritual using that which is natural, you will bring perversion. You'll bring corruption. You'll bring confusion. And most of all, you bring deceit. And the deceit is to yourself. Because you think, oh, I'm going to pray but there's residual things going on there. And there's natural thinking. You know what natural thinking does? Natural thinking justifies the residual problem. There's something that's not addressed in our spirit. Our natural thinking will say, well, it's right that you feel like that because of A, B, C, and D. And so we come into the presence of the Lord. We try to build an altar, but we're full of self-justification and wrath and doubting. I promise you there's no fire coming from heaven. There's no fire coming from heaven on that altar. But like Aaron's sons, we will bring strange fire. And we know what happened to them. If you don't, God smoked them. Fire came from the Lord and consumed them. And they were told to lift them up in their garments and carry them out. And Aaron wasn't even allowed to grieve. He was told, don't grieve. They disobeyed the Lord. So my challenge to us this morning, brethren, is do we lift? Bro, do you even lift? Do we want our hands to be like the evening sacrifice? Do we want to lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubting? There's nothing more devastating than somebody that thinks they're in a place doing what is right and holy when they've been deceived by their own wrath and their own natural thinking. Stand with me if you would this morning. Let's lift our hands for a moment. Let's lift our voices to the Lord.